This week on the Backtable Podcast. A term you've probably not heard in many, many years, if at all, and that's exploratory surgery. And when I was a kid, if you have abdominal pain, you go in for exploratory surgery to find out what's going on in there. And things like CAT scan and MRI have done away with that. And they've done exploratory surgery in joints as well before MRI. So the idea is that, you know, for the public to know that this is something that has transformed medical care and made it so that you don't have to go under the knife for everything. And it used to be the scary term, going under the knife. And that's what we're preventing. That's what we're taking out of the equation. We are imaging, finding out when something needs to be done. And a lot of times we can accomplish that through a needle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable MSK podcast, your source for all things musculoskeletal. You can find all previous episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Stryker's interventional spine business offers the control you need, the flexibility you want, and the quality your patients deserve. Stryker is your partner in making healthcare better. From technology to training, from reimbursement tools to patient education, Stryker is there to support you every step of the way. Innovation is the driving force at Stryker. Their extensive product portfolio for vertebral augmentation and radiofrequency ablation procedures ensures that you have the tools needed to provide top-notch care. But their commitment to advancement doesn't stop there. With recent additions like the Optoblate Bone Tumor Ablation System, an FDA 510K clearance for the spine jack system for compression fractures that result from malignant lesions, myeloma, or osteolytic metastasis, you'll be eager to explore all the solutions Stryker has to offer. Learn more at www.strikerivs.com. Now, back to the show. This is your host, Jacob Fleming, and today I'm honored to welcome to the show Dr. William Morrison, He's a renowned musculoskeletal radiologist, and we're excited to have him on the show to talk about innovation in musculoskeletal interventions today. Dr. Morrison, thanks for your time and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Well, we've really been looking forward to having you on the show. Your perspective is so unique for a variety of reasons, and uh, among your many titles, Professor and Medical Director of the Musculoskeletal Imaging Institute at Thomas Jefferson, Past President of the Society of Skeletal Radiology, and Medical Director of Trace Orthopedics, which will be a focus of discussion today. And uh, I'd just like to say that you have a very interesting background and a very interesting uh, perspective. So let's hear a little bit about your background and how you got to your current practice, what that looks like today. All right. Well, the way, way back machine, I always liked comic books, graphic art. I love art, art history. And that's what really kind of stimulated my interest in radiology. So when I was going through medical school and selecting a field, you know, I went back to my, my roots in graphic uh, art and, uh, and I thought, you know, I, I love looking at images and interpreting them. And that had a lot to do with my decision. And I had my residency at Jefferson. After training in MSK, I went to, in the Air Force, so I was in the Air Force in San Antonio, Lackland Air Force Base for four years. I was head of musculoskeletal imaging there. And then I got hired back at Jefferson in 1999, <laughs> a long time ago. And I've been there ever since. 
so that's uh, my story, I guess. That's fantastic. I can actually relate to that a bit because when I uh, started out, the, when the first seed of interest in radiology was planted, I was actually just a teenager and I was, my thing was kind of video games and art. And so I met a friend whose dad was a radiologist and I was like, hang on, he does what? He's a doctor and he gets to sit in front of computers and look at awesome images. So I can really relate to that path. But you have really kind of gone in uh, a lot of different directions uh, from there over your career and uh, really interested to talk about those today. And so one of the things that you're well known for is being a great teacher and your use of humor in radiology education. So uh, those who have attended AIRP courses or follow you on Twitter know uh, that you that you use uh, humor and kind of just the weirdness of things that pops up in radiology images. And I'd like to know, what is it that you enjoy about teaching? And do you ever stop seeing animals in MRI slices? Well, um, I love teaching. I love being next to residents and fellows and uh, interacting with them. And it's a two-way street. So I learn from them as well, probably more than they learn from me, I have to say. When they talk to me, you know, about a case they'll ask me questions about it. And a lot of times those questions are from a really pure perspective that I didn't even have before. And that um, allows me to think more in four dimensions and outside the box a bit. And a lot of times I have to look things up and I'll, I'll tell the resident, let's look this up. And, you know, we look, look things up and I teach that to all my residents, fellows, and my kids if you don't know something, for me, it, it's like an itch. If you don't know something, you, you have to scratch it. You have to find out what that thing is that you don't know. So, but it's a two-way street. I mean, I learned so much from the residents and fellows, not only about their perspective on things, but also pop culture, technology, and, and things like that, um, that keeps me on the cutting edge, I think. And in terms of the periodolia, I mean, that arises from the visual stuff that I talked about, but also as babies, you know, we have two granddaughters now and they are just fixated on faces. And that's where we start. <laughs> Our visual cortex develops that way. And so when you see two dots in a wall and a crack and you say, oh, that looks like a face. And that's a skill you can turn on and off. Anybody can. And you look at clouds and you can see a cloud or you can see a squirrel or a bunny. And, you know, you just draw your attention to that. So I do, do like to do that. And when the residents see me stalling, that means I've seen something. And then they'll ask me, okay, what do you see? And it's usually something too crazy to even talk about. But a lot of times, you know, it's something pretty like a face or something. Or it might be Eddie Munster holding a, holding a, a, a hoagie. Uh, you know, it could be anything. But the idea really goes back to my theory about having what we call a good eye in radiology. And that's where you see something, you, know, you find something. And the idea really is similar to when you walk in a room and you might see the pictures are a little off. And they might only be like a millimeter off, but you notice it. And that's very similar to the skill in radiology because you have a template of what's normal, what's level in your head, whether it be a chest X-ray or cardiac MR. And you've developed that normal template in your head. And when you look 
and you glance at it and something's not quite right, then that's the good eye. And then you have to identify what that thing is. And obviously your experience and knowledge tells you what specifically it is. But that's that's the thing I like to teach the residents. And that's the thing that periodolia, which is seeing faces and things, really helps with, is that you're you're tuned to look for those alterations in what's normal and abnormal. That's so interesting. And it reminds me of, you know, there's kind of a, a common saying about, you know, having a radiologist eye. And it took me a little while to understand this. That's not referring to actual visual acuity, you know, 2020 vision. It's really more about pattern recognition, which uh, arises over just uh, endless reps of seeing, like you said, the normal anatomy and seeing what the um, abnormal variations look like. And to the point that when you first open a study and, you know, you can even just look uh, sometimes on a, an MRI or a CT on the scout scan and something will just jump out at you and your brain just kind of re- registers it almost subconsciously and says that something's not right, right there, draws your eye to that. That's something that just takes uh, a lot of training and time. I think the periodolia, it, that's a really interesting kind of parallel in tandem to, to that. Yeah, the other thing it does is it makes it fun because I like to have fun in the reading room. And with our residents and fellows, we play music. We, again, like I said, we talk about pop culture and new things. And it makes it fun when you see a happy face in the spinal canal. You're like, oh, look, there's a happy face. Or look at that bunny in the shoulder. And it takes some of the doldrums out of the routine nature of what we do. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Certainly. And so shifting more toward the primary topic today, as well as renowned diagnostic radiologists, you perform a lot of musculoskeletal interventions. And at this point, you've invented several devices in this arena. So can you tell us a little bit about this interplay between diagnostic and interventional radiology and innovation? How, how do the things kind of flow between those ostensibly different disciplines? Yeah, well, you know, in radiology, like I said, there's a lot of um, repetition and a lot of things that are something we've always done, quote unquote. We've always done it that way. Or you learn dogma that may or may not be right. You go back and look at why you're doing it that way. It's not always clear. And it, it derives from a frustration about things that don't seem efficient. And you may have a PAC system that you know, requires 20 clicks for you to, you know, open a case. And you're like, why can't this be simpler? And we've all asked that question. And you probably have, everybody has tons of ideas about making things better, you know, making things more efficient. I think that stems from a low frustration level, which I definitely have, and some element of laziness, which I have. Because if something takes a lot of clicks or takes a lot of steps. I want to try to reduce those steps because I'm relatively lazy. So that low level of frustration and laziness has led me to try to figure out ways to make things faster or easier. And um, when you're talking about products, bringing them to market, you have to, like I said, we all have ideas. It might be for a birdhouse. It might be for something else. It has to be something you can do. And it has to be something in your wheelhouse. Like, you know, you can come up with an idea like, oh, you know, well, we have, we have uh, voice to text programs that we use, you know, dictation systems. We have translation. So why not make a universal translator? 
uh, we can stick a little earbud in. We can uh, speak and listen to what we said in another language, you know, and, and go to other countries. Sounds like a great idea. And I think people are working on that, but I can't do it. It's not in my wheelhouse. I, I have no experience with that. So it has to be something that you can actually do. So in terms of medical devices, I've been doing intervention for a long time. And when I was in the Air Force, I was doing a lot of spine intervention, a lot of um, nerve blocks and discography, which was popular then. And L5S1 was always the hard one to get into. We always said you make your money at L5S1 because it's relatively low and iliac crests overlie the disc. And so you have to kind of uh, curve the needle in. So we used to take a 18 gauge needle and put it, park it outside the disc and then take a 21 gauge six inch needle and make a permanent curve over a, a hypodermic needle syringe and then put that through and it would curve into the disc when it came out of the 18 gauge needle. And I thought, this is a lot of steps. And if it doesn't come out exactly right, you know, patient has pain. So why not just make a steerable needle? So I thought, well, let's take that solid stylet inside the needle that we've been using for 100 years and make it into two components. And one component goes over a barrel with a lever and you can deflect the tip. And so it worked pretty well. And we brought that to market after like, you know, 15 years of development. But, you know, it didn't do that well. And I figured out why, because it costs about 10 times more than a straight needle, number one. Number two, people are used to using straight needles, so it involves a change of how people do things. And uh, it uh, didn't really catch on, but it's being used now for mostly celiac plexus blocks in patients with pancreatic cancer. So that's a really nice thing. I'm really happy about that. In fact, just yesterday, I saw an interventional radiologist that was very proud that they were doing an anterior approach for celiac block through the liver. And you know, the typical way of doing a celiac plexus block is to go through the bowel. And patients can get peritonitis, which can be a big problem in patients with pancreatic cancer. So the idea was, well, with a steerable needle, you can go posteriorly and go around the spine and get to the celiac plexus. And this person, you know, was going through the liver and I was like, well, that can cause complications too. So it has to catch on. It has to be a need for it. That's the third thing. It has to be people asking for it. So that brings me to trace orthopedics. And, you know, after my experience with the steerable needle and how it didn't do that great, I kind of took a hiatus and thinking, well, my ideas obviously aren't very good. So I spent five years just kind of things on the back burner. And I was doing a biopsy of a humeral, humeral head one day near the rotator cuff. And I was thinking, you know, at the time, I had partial thickness rotator cuff tears, and the surgeons didn't really want to treat them because they said, well, to treat a partial thickness tear, what we do is we make it into a complete tear, and then we reattach it. So he said, why don't you just go through rehab? And so I spent a year or two going through rehab, and in the meantime, I couldn't do like weightlifting. I couldn't golf. I couldn't do any things with my shoulders. And I was thinking, this is really terrible. Um, why can't we just repair these partial thickness tears? So I was doing that biopsy and thinking, you know, I, I we can tack these tendons down percutaneously. So I developed a device in my garage to do it and tried it out and it worked really well. I made it out of um, Home Depot material and the spring and a pen and worked really well. And then I, I figured, well, this probably isn't going to work. So I sat on it for five years and then just 
more and more cases came through. And my mother had gluteus medius tears and she got muscle atrophy and now she has difficulty getting around. And I'm thinking, I got to do something about this because um, there's a real need for it. There are also reimbursement codes. So it's not like it's going to be a problem, you know, in terms of the financial part of it. And there's a real clinical need for it. It's not, it's in my wheelhouse. It's, it's not much different than what we do now with dry needling, tenotomy, PRP, things like that. So at that point, I took it to our innovation office at Jefferson, and they liked it. We got a provisional patent for it. And uh, at that point, as the provisional patent was about to expire, we were going on to a, a full patent, and they were only going to cover it in the US, and we wanted international coverage. So they said, okay, we'll release the IP to you. We formed a company, uh, Trace Orthopedics, and went on from there. That's really, really interesting. And uh, I think any of the uh, radiologists or other musculoskeletal specialists can relate to this problem, the kind of the very common gray zone of uh, tendon injuries in the shoulder and uh, the hip. We see all the time and it's kind of like, well, it's not really a surgical issue. But as you said, you follow these patients along or if you are one of these patients or your family member is one of these patients, you realize it's kind of doing nothing is uh, not really a benign action as well. So that's really interesting about what you talked about earlier with seeing the need for it and it being within your wheelhouse, all those things kind of have to align. And that's really interesting. So tell us about what's, what's the current state with, uh, with the device. Yeah, we're doing quite well. We went through engineering through a company in Florida um, called Nagel Rider. And uh, we developed the device, tested it, um, did a lot of performance testing, um, ergonomic testing, packaging and all that stuff. We did animal testing, which worked really well. It's a sheep model out of the um, Colorado State University. And uh, we did destructive testing on the sheep. And it actually, our implant withstood 674 pounds of force, which is much higher than a suture anchor, which was fantastic news for us. And it's something about the configuration of the implant that I think gives some advantages over a suture anchor. We've also gotten a lot of interest from orthopedic surgeons. And the reason why I think is because I've kind of reframed this to them as kind of a, an alternate form of a suture anchor. So you think about it, you know, when we were in the 70s, you know, before arthroscopy uh, and before, it's quite simple to repair a tendon. You do a incision, you reflect the tissue back and you repair the tendon. Once arthroscopy got uh, developed, it became very complicated to repair tendons because you had to repair them through these little tubes. So fantastic engineering developed suture anchors, a suture attached to an anchor, took like 20 steps, very complicated, to repair a tendon through a scope. In fact, the older surgeons usually just repair them with an open procedure, and the newer surgeons that trained on it, because it's kind of an art form, would repair them using uh, arthroscopy. And so we saw that, you know, in the early days when I was practicing. And the idea is it takes like 20 steps to do this, whereas ours takes like one step. So surgeons are very interested in using this to help shorten their procedures because the OR is the most expensive real estate on the planet, except for maybe these space uh, shuttles that are going up. It's about $10,000 an hour um, for OR time. So if they can shorten that by 15 minutes, it's fantastic. 
we've gotten interest from uh, surgeons that take care of athletes for things like um, core injuries, athletic pubalgia, um, adductor tears, which start off as tears that remain next to the footprint, the bone. And if they can get the, this player back on the field to finish the season um, and get definitive surgery afterward, that'll be a huge advantage to them. So uh, one of our medical advisory board members is uh, Bill Myers, who founded the Vincera Clinic in Philadelphia that takes care of most of the players that get core injuries. We also have on our board the team surgeon for the Jacksonville Jaguars. So we're getting a lot of surgical interest. We're getting interest also from surgeons that do total joint replacements, uh, especially hip surgeons, because there's an incidence of gluteus tears after surgery for total hip replacement. And their idea is to reinforce the tendons using this in like a minute during the surgery to help prevent the complication of uh, gluteus tears after surgery. So we've been quite uh, successful in that regard, getting a lot of interest from radiologists, physical medicine, rehabilitation people, pain management people, surgeons. We went through friends and family for seed funding. We raised about 400,000 with that. Uh, we went through Koretsu Forum, uh, which is the largest angel network in the world. And they do a lot of medical uh, funding. And so we did our diligence with them. We are finishing Series A funding round now, which is a $1.5 million raise. We have about 200K left of that. Um, we're closing that out soon, and we're going to FDA in the next few months, hopefully be on the market by next year. Fantastic. That is really exciting to hear about because I, I love the way you described is it's something that is applicable to a lot of different clinical scenarios. And uh, going back to the steerable needle, the impetus for that was with uh, discography, which has become a bit of a lost art form nowadays. And mm -hmm. it sounds like the uses that it's still having may be a little bit different than what you imagine. Uh, whereas the uh, tendon uh, anchor device is so applicable to a lot of different clinical scenarios. And one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking in getting the surgeons involved is a lot of times when when you introduce a new kind of minimally invasive device, you know, the interventional radiologists may be using, sometimes the surgeons may kind of balk at that, you know, and looking at, you know, why are you trying to come take my lunch? <laughs> but to me, from what you're describing, it seems like this is uh, adding an additional step in the treatment paradigm that wouldn't really burn any bridges uh, down the line in terms of getting uh, definitive surgery. And sometimes if you can get away with doing something that is ultra minimally invasive like this and the patient doesn't need anything extra, sometimes that is exactly what's needed for the patient and for the clinician. A lot of times the surgeons have a patient come in and it's just, yeah, they're not a great candidate for full surgery, but you have something else to offer them. So it's rather than taking things away, I would say, and I would urge uh, any of the surgeons listening to talking about your device and a lot of the new devices, that's not really what we're about. We, we want to focus on taking care of these patients who haven't really had a great option before and still involving the full, the full realm of treatment there. It's really cool. So, and it sounds like we'll uh, be able to hopefully get our hands on it uh, before too long here. 
Yes, uh, hopefully by next year. We already have our clinical test sites all set up around the country, and um, we'll hopefully do our first 100 patients within a month or so after we get FDA clearance. We'll get reimbursement data, and we're looking to exit to a big company that can provide uh, better distribution uh, once we get our uh, clinical data back. Fantastic. Well, uh, that, that's really exciting to hear. I know this; uh, these processes are really a marathon or maybe a triathlon even, uh, especially from the time of idea inception to getting to where you are now. And one of the things I, I wanted to bring up before we end is I saw you had a somewhat recent tweet maybe a, a few months ago. It, you said one of the challenges in pitching a minimally invasive procedure device like this is just to explain to the potential investors or whoever you're presenting to the concept as radiologists who perform procedures or who are involved clinically. So why is this such a problem for us and how do we solve it to promote more minimally invasive innovation? Yeah, um, one thing that was very apparent to me is that most of the public doesn't know that radiologists do procedures, that we do intervention. And uh, investors certainly don't know that. And most of these angel groups, they'll have a doctor on their uh, advisory board, but oftentimes they don't have any experience in what you're doing. And if they do, and they have an orthopedic surgeon, a lot of times they're either super subspecialized or they're very general. And, you know, they have difficulty envisioning the market perhaps for our device in particular. I think a lot of this has to go back to our societies who collect our money for annual fees, but they don't do a whole lot of public relations in telling the public what we do. And I think that would go a long way toward bridging that gap, which really needs to, to happen, I think, fairly soon because, you know, we're getting to a point where another inflection point in radiology, you know, we're, you know, we have challenges on all sides. And I think showing our value is extremely important, not only to the public, but also to payers, legislators. They need to know that what we do can lead to a cost savings. That, for instance, an MRI can lead to a cost savings. It's not all expense. And that if we apply radiology early on in the medical cascade, we can actually save a lot of money in the long run by directing people to the correct imaging and the correct diagnosis early on. So, you know, I'd like to, you know, tell our societies all the way from RSNA to, you know, our subspecialty societies that we really need to do a lot more funding of public relations. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with that completely, Dr. Morrison. And, you know, my, my focus is more on the interventional side and, and the clinical side. And so this is, this is kind of a problem I think about all the time, you know, when a, a patient asks, you know, what is my specialty or what do I do? You know, even after a few years now, I'm still struggling to have that kind of 15 second pitch down, you know, and it's much easier to say, oh, I'm a hip surgeon. Everyone kind of gets that. And mm -hmm. then you're saying, well, I'm a radiologist who performs procedures from head to toe using image guidance and image imaging diagnosis you know, a lot of people, their eyes start to glaze over in that part. So I, I think it is uh, a challenge to do this. I agree with you. I think that having kind of the more public relations there and, you know, I, I don't see this in any way that 
we have to exert our, our dominance or, you know, pound our chests in any way compared with the other specialties. I think that we bring something unique to the table in terms of what we've been talking about this entire discussion about seeing things from the imaging aspect and then seeing kind of problems from a certain perspective over and over again, you start to think about different ways of solving them. Whereas historically, you know, there's the old uh, t-shirt or the adage that says interventional radiology, inventing procedures for other specialties since whenever. <laughs> and which is a little bit of a shame. Uh, I think it's, it's great that, you know, eventually, you know, these devices and ideas can get to a point where they're benefiting a lot of patients. But I think the more that radiologists are clinical and involved, it really provides an additional benefit as well. And I'll tell you, in my fellowship, we're um, very clinically heavy. We have clinic pretty much every single day and seeing patients all the time. And the uh, frequency with which the patients are coming in with an adequate and correct understanding of their diagnosis is actually close to 0%. And part of that has to be with, um, you know, most patients are not seen by a, a surgeon or a subspecialty surgeon, kind of the definitive treatment person. But they go through, you know, different specialties uh, of different degrees of expertise. And most of them are not really looking at the imaging. They may be looking at the imaging reports. And of course, as a diagnostic radiologist, we're a little bit hamstrung. You know, we don't have the patient in front of us to know what may or may not matter. Uh, and so when a patient comes in and they've got lateral hip pain and you see on the MRI that they have uh, you know, IT band uh, friction syndrome findings or, or things like this, you can pinpoint exactly what that is. And so using that skill set of diagnosis, which is acquired from sitting in the dark reading room for a long time and extrapolating that to a clinical setting is something pretty special. I think we bring that to the table. So at this point, just preaching to the choir, but I agree yeah, with you just, completely. Yeah. I'll just bring up one more thing a term you've probably not heard in many, many years, if at all, and that's exploratory surgery. And when I was a kid, if you have abdominal pain, you go in for exploratory surgery to find out what's going on in there. And things like CAT scan and MRI have done away with that. And they've done exploratory surgery in joints as well before MRI. So the idea is that, you know, for the public to know that this is something that has transformed medical care and made it so that you don't have to go under the knife for everything. And it used to be the scary term, going under the knife. And that's what we're preventing. That's what we're taking out of the equation. We are imaging, finding out when something needs to be done. And a lot of times we can accomplish that through a needle. So that's, that's the value, I think, part of the value. I agree completely. And nowadays, I mean, you talk to a joint surgeon, for example, and say, hey, how, are, how upset are you that you haven't done an open arthrotomy in maybe your entire life? Most of them say, no, <laughs> no desire to do that. And ask, you know, trauma surgeons, hey, do you miss the days of uh, doing X laps uh, multiple times a night on patients? No, no, no one, no one wants that in the future of medicine and surgery is minimally invasive and ultra minimally invasive. We were talking about Star Trek before we started the podcast. And, you know, um, of course, the surgeon of the star, the future in the Star Trek is, is basically an interventional radiologist, you know? And so all, 
all surgery and I think all procedure is going down that pathway of being more interventional and through a needle, like you said, uh, or without a scalpel as, as one of the organizations uses its tagline. Yeah. And part of the reason we went with trace orthopedics as our first indication, we're using, we're doing repair of the gluteus medius and minimus is because surgeons don't really like doing that surgery. Um, most of those patients are older patients. They have comorbidities and it's almost ubiquitous. I mean, about 60% of people over age 70 have some gluteus pathology. And if it goes on to muscle atrophy, they can get Trendelenburg gait and uh, all kinds of gait disturbances and fall risk. So it's a low hanging fruit for us. Um, when you come out with a device, you always want to get one killer indication not only to get through FDA, but also, you know, in terms of a focus, not only for investors, but also for your, your market, initial market. So that was really the low hanging fruit for us was repairing those gluteus or reinforcing those gluteus uh, partial tears, um, trying to prevent the progression to atrophy and uh, gait disturbance. Fantastic. I really look forward to hearing more as we get closer to market with this. And then over the next few years, hearing about the dissemination and the spark of, of using this device for different indications and figuring out how people are going to be using it. Uh, I think that's really exciting. So uh, our listeners, where can they kind of keep up to speed with the developments with Trace or Orthopedics? How's the best way for them to know about that? Well, our website is undergoing redesign now. So traceorthopedics.com. You know, you can email me or follow my Twitter account. So my Twitter is at MorrisonMSK. Feel free to email me, william.morrison at jefferson.edu. Happy to keep you updated. We can put you on our newsletter list if you're interested in following. And uh, hopefully you'll hear more about us next year. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Morrison. Anything else you'd like to talk about before we end? Any final words? No, it's just that it's an interesting future uh, for radiology. It, we live in interesting times. And like I said, we're at, at, an, at an inflection point. And I think that it will take all of us to get involved in public relations, innovation, product development. And uh, we need to be on the forefront. Uh, we need to be on the forefront of research, product development, and uh, we, need to be, we need to have a face with, with people. We need to be in front of them and, uh, and show our value. And that's kind of um, hopefully what we're trying to do here. Agreed completely. And I think it's exciting uh, just to imagine where we'll be in the next two years when we hopefully see the launch of this product. And then the five, five to 10 years, I think it's unimaginable what we'll be seeing then. And uh, thank you for all your innovation and uh, enthusiasm to push the envelope forward. And uh, with that, I want to say thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed our discussion. We're looking forward to our listeners to hearing about this and hopefully before too long, getting their hands on the Trace Orthopedics uh, tendon device. Well, thank you. It's really been an honor to talk with you today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Dr. Morrison. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at 
underscore Backtable MSK on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Jacob Fleming, and co-hosts Michael Barraza and Chris Beck. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and show notes written by Marvi Espiritu and Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Roy Thanks again and see you next time.